All right, good morning, everybody. Morning. morning. The hymn for the month, TLH, the red hymnal. If you don't have a red hymnal, it's on the bottom shelf on the rack. 472. I don't think that this is new to anybody, so I don't really feel obliged to introduce it. We'll just sing the hymn. Rise, ye children of salvation, all who cleave to Christ the head. What arise, O mighty nation, ere the foe on Zion tread? He draws nigh and would defy all the hosts of God Most High. Saints and heroes long before us firmly on this ground have stood. See their banner waving o'er us Conquers through the Savior's blood, ground we hold whereon of old fought the faithful and the bold. Fighting we shall be victorious by the blood of Christ our Lord. On our foreheads bright and glorious shines the witness of his word. Spear and shield and battlefield, his great name we cannot yield. When his servants stand before him, each receiving his reward. When his saints in light adore him, giving glory to the Lord, victory our song shall be like the thunder of the sea. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Grant to us, O Lord, the Spirit to think and to do always such things as are right, that we who cannot do anything that is good without you may be enabled by you to live according to your will. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, the verse of this week, Proverbs 20, 11. Let's speak this together. Even a child is known by his deeds, whether what he does is pure and right. Even a child, which means what? Everybody else. Everybody else too. So, obvious is it that you are known by your deeds and that by what you do and how you live you are known that people are able to judge who you are and what your character is 
based on the content of your deeds. So obvious is that, that even a child is known by those factors. Even a child is known by that. So if a child is known by that, how much more then is the adult to be conscious of that fact and think that they are known by what they do? Because a child is still learning how to be. But the scales of judgment do not give an advantage to the child or to the adult. They are the same. The measure is the same. Even a child. So if the child is to be known that way, so too are you. And a child is to be known by his deeds. Which is to say, works. Now, how do we rectify this? How do we reconcile the fact that you are known by your works with the fact that we would say you're saved by faith? Because your works are in response to your faith. Are they? Are your works in response to your faith? Well, because your faith, you do good works. You, because if you have faith, then you do good works. So then are your works a response to faith? Or are your works faith? Yes. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> Good. I didn't intend for that to be a trick, but uh, touche. Uh, yes. So when we talk about faith and works, ultimately, at the, at the fundamental level, they're not separate. If you have faith, then you do works. And why do you do works? Because you have faith. The two are really two sides of the same coin. That's why St. Paul talks so much about faith and St. James talks so much about works, but they're really both talking about the same thing. So, even a child is known by his deeds, whether what he does is pure and right. Pure and right. Whether, and typically, whether would indicate, grammatically, whether what you do is pure and right or not. So your deeds are the thing that will determine how you are known. Now, are you going to be known as being holy or are you going to be known as being something else? That's up to you. So how do you live pure and right? To live pure and right is to live from God through faith in Christ. And how do you live from God through faith in Christ? By the Holy Spirit we would say is indwelling. Or the other way is not to live from God through faith in Christ by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but from the heart. Uh, we'll just do it like this because I don't want to write all this up. From the heart and will 
of man. So these are the two ways that you can live. Now, this is, I talk a lot about the didache. Well, the didache begins with the words, there are two ways, one of life and one of death. The epistle of Barnabas, there are two ways, one of life and one of death. The apostle Paul, flee from what is evil because it is death and run to what is good because it is life. It really is as simple as that. Not everything in life or in theology is black and white. Most of it's various hues of gray. But this is one thing that is black and white. There are only two ways. There are only two paths. And one is life and one is death. So even a child is known by his deeds whether he is living from God or whether he is living from the will and heart of man. Let's speak this again. Even a child is known by his deeds, whether what he does is pure and right. What does God's word say to children? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Children, obey your parents, period. No, that's the way your parents speak to you, but the way that the Lord speaks to you is obey your parents in the Lord, which, as we have talked about many times, means that you are not obeying your parents because you think that they're worth obeying. Because I tell you what, most of the time, you're not going to think that your parents are worth obeying once you hit a certain age. You don't obey your parents because, it's, because they're worth it. You obey them for the Lord because the fourth commandment is about the Lord's authority primarily and then the Lord's authority setting up authorities for you. Why do you obey your authorities? because their authority is given to them by God, and God is the ultimate authority. You recognize God's authority, which means that you recognize the authority of anyone that he establishes, which means your parents in this instance. So you children, obey your parents because your parents are given to you by God. And also, as St. Paul continues, this is also the first commandment that, is, uh, that has a promise attached to it, that you may live long. And what this means is, when your parents say, oh, I'm going to kill you, that you do what they say so they don't. <laughs> That's not what it says. I just knew the parents would get a laugh. Uh, what this really means is your parents are wise. Whether or not you think that they are wise and to what degree they are wise is inconsequential. Your parents are more wise than you, and they always will be. And... Your parents have the responsibility of training, the, training children up in the way of the Lord. So the parent that, uh, lives and in, uh, that, that believes and lives according to the fear and trust in the Lord and who raises their children in that same way is wise regardless of how much they know or how much real world wisdom they have because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So parents have the responsibility of raising their children. So children, obey your parents because your parents are wise and they are bringing you up in the, in the fear and instruction of the Lord. 
And when you are brought up in the Lord, your days will always be well, and you will live long on the earth. And this doesn't mean you will live for many years, because you might live long on the earth only living a short while. But you live long, not in the quantity of uh, days that you are given, but in the, in the quantity of the quality of the life that you are given. You live long in the Lord. And, of course, you know that if you die, you don't die. You still yet live. So, but that's when you are in the Lord. You yet live. So, you obey your parents because your parents are walking the way and are trying to get you to walk the way too. So obeying your parents has more to it than just, oh, I better, better be a decent child and you know, do what my parents tell me so I don't get punished. Uh, it's also about ensuring that I stay on the way of the Lord. Any questions about the verse or the catechism? Okay, children, you can go downstairs for Sunday school. Uh, two quick things. One, today is supposed to be a hymn Sunday, as you know. We're not going to do that today for a couple reasons. One is that we're behind on what I really want to be talking about, which is fine. Summer's a little loosey-goosey anyway, so I'm not, I'm not being a stickler, but there are some things I do really want to make sure we talk about. And the second thing is, this is, the hymn for this month is pretty well known, and there's, uh, there's not a lot that I can actually say about it. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you the most interesting thing that I can tell you about that particular hymn, and that is this. For those people that really like to talk about the good old Lutheran hymns that often aren't good and old, or Lutheran, at, at least as it pertains to the Lutheran Church's history in America, this hymn, TLH 472, actually is about the highest that you can get on the ladder of the good old Lutheran hymns. This is a hymn that was written by the first man to be ordained as a Lutheran pastor in America. And he wrote this hymn which survived in TLH and sadly does not live in the, the LSB, making room for other better hymns, I guess, which was a snarky comment, uh, but nevertheless a very good, good hymn and, and a faithful one too. So that's, that's the, the most interesting thing about that hymn is that it's one of the oldest Lutheran hymns from America written by the first man to be ordained as a Lutheran pastor in America. Not the first Lutheran pastor in America, the first man ordained in America. Now, if you really want to talk about the good old Lutheran hymns, then we go back all the way to 1524 because there are some hymns, most of which still are in the LSB, of the original 18, I think it was 18, and then 20 some, uh, low 20s, from the first and second 
Lutheran hymnals, respectively. But the first one came out in 1524 called the Erfurt Inchiridion, and that one, that one had, I'm pretty sure the number is 18 hymns uh, that are written by Luther and a couple others, and that was the original Lutheran hymnal, and the majority of those hymns are still in the hymnal. And every now and then, somebody will complain about one of those hymns in church, or after church, to me, which is a very big mistake. <laughs> now, you can complain about anything that you want to, and I will listen to you. It doesn't mean I'm going to do anything about your complaint, but in, on, you know, in rare instances, if you complain about just the right thing, I will respond to you with snark instead of with patience. And this is the wrong thing that a couple people have complained about. Why did we sing this hymn instead of the good old Lutheran hymns? And then my response is, well, this hymn is actually the goodest and the oldest of the good old Lutheran hymns, going back to the very first hymnal that the Lutheran church ever produced in the year 1524. And they say, oh, I didn't know that. And I say, I know, but now you do. <laughs> but you know what we mean when we say a good I know what, I, the good old hymns. I know what the good old hymns are, yes. Means ones we know and like. I know. Okay. <laughs> I know. I know. No, I know, I'm, but I'm, I'm and typically, I don't say anything when folks talk about the good old hymns because I know exactly what they mean. But if it's something like, you know, Lord, keep us steadfast in your word, and you say, well, why do we have to sing Lord, keep us steadfast in your word instead of one of the good old Lutheran hymns? And I say, I don't think you know what those words mean. It's only been two times that that's ever happened, that somebody actually didn't know that one of those was one of the the good old ones, yeah. Bill. Now you could have changed that to a three instead of a two. I could have changed it to many things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to know why? Yes, tell me why. Because 473 is the church's one foundation, and that's one of my favorites. But that's not a look for him. Uh, do you want to know what else is the church's one foundation? That's one 644, which is the hymn for today. Yeah, I love you. <laughs> I listen when people tell me what hymns they like, which isn't to say I don't like it either. Uh, yes, so that's just me being snarky to you. <laughs> All right, so uh, those, that's about the hymn. Any questions about the hymn? Okay, it's a good hymn. Actually, uh, when I was at the seminary, Dr. Rast, who you probably know as the face of the seminary in Fort Wayne, because he's the president, he teaches one class, and that was one of his conditions, I believe, when he became the president, was that he still wanted to teach. And he is one of very few people who's... Uh, who's area of interest is the Lutheran Church in America. Most people don't really care about the Lutheran Church's history in America, but Dr. Rast is one of them. So he teaches Church History 4, which is all about church, the Lutheran Church in America. And every time he teaches that class, for every lecture, he begins the lecture by making everyone stand and sing that hymn because it was written by the first man ordained 
in America. So he wants us to sing a, a historic hymn for the class of history that we, that we were in, which was a nice little touch. And I thought about that when I got the hymn. Yes, Bill? I don't know how it started way before my time, which is way back. <laughs> but um, at St. John's, when we sang churches, one foundation we always stood to sing that hymn. Long before... Uh, no, not churches, one foundation. Um, Mighty Fortress. Oh, okay. I was going to say, well, <laughs> no, standing to sing the Church's One Foundation has some negative convocations in, or connotations in my mind, yeah. no, which I, I know I, you I are aware of. Yeah, fortress. a mighty fortress. Okay, yeah, I don't know where that would have come from either. I don't know either but but there's lots of little things like that. This same uh, Dr. Rast in his class, and th then, we'll get, then we'll get back on the topic, but... He told a story about a, an old Lutheran church in Pennsylvania that had basically been there forever since there were Lutherans in America. And young pastor got out of the seminary, was called to that church, goes, preaches his first sermon. Right before he gets up there to preach, the entire congregation, who is all sitting on one side, stands up, walks over to the other side, and then sits down and waits for the sermon. No explanation. So he preaches his sermon and just doesn't think about it. Next Sunday comes along, everybody's sitting on that side again. Right before he preaches his sermon, they all get up, move over, and sit down on the other side. And he said, why are you doing this? And they said, this is just what we've done. And he said, but why? He said, I don't know. We just always have done this. So he went, so he went to visit shut-ins, and I think he went to his oldest shut-in. And he said, maybe you know this. You've been around a while in this church. Why is it that right before the sermon, everybody gets up and moves? Because nobody can tell me. And this fellow said, oh, well, that was back from when we had a wood-burning stove in the church. And the stove was on one side, and we'd get it all nice and warm, and so it'd be too hot, so everybody would sit on one side of the church. But by the time the sermon came around, it had died down a little bit, and it was starting to get cold, so everybody would get up and move to the other side where it was warmer. He said, are they still doing that there? I thought we got rid of that. <laughs> Creatures of habit, you know, the old joke about how many Lutherans it takes to change a light bulb, right? None, because they don't change anything. <laughs> oh, dear. you got to love it. Okay. All right. Let's talk a little bit about, um, about the intermediate state of death. What I want to review is why we call it a state and why it's better to ask a question about what is your state than where are you? Because the question really isn't one of geography or of location. It's really one of state of being. Um, so we're going to look at a few things here. Um, Genesis 4 is, is one, and you know Genesis 4, that's Cain and Abel. 
Um, so Cain talked with Abel, his brother. This is Genesis 4.8. Now Cain talked with his brother Abel, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? Uh, one thing to notice right there, what does this sound like? The Lord finding someone and asking the question. The right, in the garden. That's important because uh, this is the first, this is not the first death in creation, but is the first death of man in creation. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of question about uh, the Lord providing skins for Adam and Eve to wear, and most people don't really think about that beyond the fact that God clothes them. But the question that I pose to you is the one most people don't think of, and that is, where do the skins come from? Animals. How do you, how do you get the skin off an animal? You have to kill it. I mean, you wouldn't have to, but that's cruel and unusual punishment called flaying. That's how St. Bartholomew was killed, by the way. He was flayed, skinned alive. So anyway, to take the skin of an animal, you kill it, which means that in order for the Lord to provide garments for Adam and Eve, he sheds blood. So who is the first person that sheds blood? Well, actually, it's the Lord. God is the first person to shed blood. Here's another question. So Cain and Abel are offering sacrifices, and they just happen to know that they are supposed to be offering sacrifices, and Abel just happens to know that the good sacrifice is to provide the first fruit of his lambs without blemish, and that he has to kill it. Did you ever wonder how it is that they knew they were supposed to make a sacrifice? There's nowhere in the Bible, it just goes from... Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden to Cain and Abel making sacrifices. Well, how do they know they're supposed to do that? And then sacrifices continue on through the rest of the Old Testament. But how do they know? Well, because the Lord makes a sacrifice in the Garden of Eden. He gives them skins. And then Adam teaches his children that this is what you must do now because of sin. You must shed blood. And here's the other question. What's left behind after you skin an animal? A carcass, sure. What's, what's, yeah, meat. Okay, the meat on the carcass. Uh, well, what do Adam and Eve eat? They were vegans, weren't they? They were vegetarians. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they ate of the fruit of the land. Uh, when does man start eating meat? After the ark, after the flood, when Moses or <laughs> when Noah and his family exit the ark after being in it. So here we are in the garden. They don't eat meat. The Lord has just killed an animal and taken its skin off. What do they do with all the meat? They make an offering out of it. So they know how to make an offering. They know what they're supposed to do. 
They don't eat the meat, but they do know that it's to be an offering to the Lord. Now, there are parallels here. So the Lord goes into the garden to find Adam and Eve after the sin that they have committed. And that's the first time that you hear about the Lord being anthropomorphic. What does it mean to be anthropomorphic? Yeah, to be like a human. So when we talk about, like the Greek gods are anthropomorphic gods because they look like humans, they bear human qualities, and basically the Greek gods, because they are an invention of man, are modeled after the image of man. So they are anthropomorphic. They look like, they look like man and they act like man. So this is the first time that God is anthropomorphic. How do you know that God is anthropomorphic after Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit? Because he was walking. What do you need to walk? Legs. He felt the cool of the day. How do you feel the cool of the day? With your body. The Lord has flesh and blood. Walking in the garden. This is why when we talk about the incarnation of Christ, we say that it, there are... There are Consequences of the, consequences isn't a good word. There are, there are long lasting and far and deep reaching effects of the incarnation of Christ. And the crucifixion of Christ then from the point of sin onward becomes an eternal reality in history. Christ is eternally slain before and after. So the image of what God looks like is always as the crucified Christ. So when God is bearing flesh, walking in the Garden of Eden, what does he look like? He looked not just any man, but like Jesus. So when he's walking in the garden and he says to Adam and Eve, look what your sin has wrought, death has entered creation, and he slays a lamb, and clothes them with the white wool of the lamb. It's with hands that are already pierced through and a side that is already pierced. And they see him and they don't understand why God looks this way. And then he is explaining it to them by what he does. I'm killing now. Death has to be the consequence of sin now. And then the seed, the promise of the seed of the woman is that you see these wounds, by these wounds you will be healed. I mean, you think about things like where does Isaiah get all of this? By his stripes we are healed. Why are we always talking about the man who is stricken, smitten, and afflicted, and beaten, and scorned, and pierced through? Jacob's ladder isn't a ladder. I've talked about this before. The Greek of the Septuagint, which, by the way, is not Greek written by Greeks. It's Greek written by Hebrews. It's a Greek version of the Old Testament that's written by the Old Testament scribes and students. And they write it in Greek so that the people who don't know Hebrew anymore can still read the Old Testament. So when they translate it, they do it on purpose, choosing very specific words. When Jacob has the vision of the ladder, it's not a ladder like a step ladder, it's a cross. He sees the Son of Man upon the, the cross. He knows about the crucifixion. So these Old Testament saints understand what the crucifixion is. Abraham sees the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? It is the day of the crucifixion. Jesus meets with Elijah, the greatest of the prophets, and with Moses, the greatest who is the law. He meets with them. And what do they discuss? His exodus, his 
exodus. What is his exodus? His death and resurrection. So the, the Old Testament scripture is permeated with the crucified Christ. Uh, so now here he is again. The Lord is walking and he says, hey, where's your brother? Now some people say that they think that this is Adam. Because who is the first pastor? Adam. Yeah. Adam is the first priest, really. Um, He's the, the one that knows to make the sacrifices. He's the one that keeps them up. He's the one that teaches his children. He's the one that proclaims the word of the Lord. How, you know, like St. Paul says, how, do they, how can they believe on him in whom they have not heard? Someone has to preach. So Adam, some people say then that Adam um, is really, when it says that the Lord is speaking to Cain, that it's really Adam, his father, but not functioning as daddy, functioning as priest. I am now... I am now the pastor. Now, what have you done? I toyed with that for a while, long ago. But I think, through my own studies, I don't think it's right. I think, I think this is, there's too much that's in common here with what happens in the garden. And I really, you really have to picture Christ standing before Cain, and Cain, ugh, feeling the weight of that. And the words of condemnation that the Lord speaks to Cain are too great. I think. So the Lord says to Cain, where is your brother? And just like in the garden, did you eat of the tree? Where are you? Does he say that because he doesn't know? Like when you come home from work, dads, and your daughter is hiding behind the curtains, and you see the little daughter-shaped imprint and you see the little sandals under the drapes, and you hear the little giggle, he'll never find me. And then you go, boy, where is Johanna? Wherever could she be? Are you asking because you don't know? No. Or like this, when Cameron is the only one at home, and then all of a sudden, the front window is broken, and there's a baseball in the front yard, and you say, Cameron, did you play ball in the house? Are you asking because you don't already know? No. You know. You know. Which is why, Cameron, when kids lie to their parents and say, did you play ball in the house? No, I didn't. That's how parents know that you're lying. And your excuses aren't as smart as you think they are when you're a kid. I was just sitting here minding my own business, and I had the ball in my hand, and then, and then the dog came, and, and the dog picked up the ball and then threw it. Honest. <laughs> the parents know. God knows. God knows where Adam and Eve are, and he knows what they have done. Where is your brother? Does he know where his brother is? Yeah, he does. And he tells him that in just a minute. Where is your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, if I had said something like that, you know, think of this like God the Father looking down here, Cain, 
Boy, if I had said something like that, I'd be waking up five minutes later on the floor. <laughs> and I'd be lucky if my head was still attached. <laughs> Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer, of course, is... Yes, duh! Uh, well, Kane, I hate to break it to you, but yeah, you kind of are. And he said, what have you done? Again, not because he doesn't know. What have you done? And this is the important verse for us. The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What's the tense of that? The tense, yeah, cries out to me. It's present. It's present tense. Wait a minute, but Abel's dead. Isn't he? Well, he's physically dead. Yeah. Yes. But is he dead? Friends, you've got better's odds, 50-50. Is Abel dead? No. No. Now ask her why. Why? You were sitting there thinking of saying no when you thought someone else was going to say it first. I'll tell you what. You're both right. If you say yes, you're right. If you say no, you're right. I gave you the best possible trick question because no matter what you did, you would be right. See, I care about you. Well, well yes, but I, I have to get you to answer somehow. Uh, right, so, Bill, you're right. Uh, Abel didn't pull his or Cain didn't pull his punches, so to speak. You know, he really killed his brother. He took his brother's life. Yes. Uh, but remember what we talked about when, in the last module of this class. What is death? Earthly death. It's the separation of the soul from the body. Is the body mortal? Yes, yes it is. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, from, from uh, the earth you have come and from the earth you will return. Okay, yes, your body will decay. Uh, but what about your soul? Is your soul mortal? No, it's not. Your soul is immortal. Your soul is spirit. It is, it is uh, immortal. That's why the Lord says, don't fear the people that can kill your body. I mean, what is it for your body to die? Honestly, it's really nothing for your body to die. But fear instead the ones that can kill your soul uh, with Gehenna, with hellfire. Uh, so, whatever, the body's dead. But the blood cries, present tense, which means somehow Abel is still pleading with the Lord. He's still there. Lord, Lord, seek justice. Now, we see another picture of that in the book of Revelation. And we'll probably, I think, talk about that more in another little bit. Uh, so I don't want to delve into it too deeply. But one of the things that St. John sees in his revelation is the souls of the blessed departed under the altar in the courts of heaven. And what are they doing under the altar? Pardon me? They are not worshiping, no. They are pleading with the Lord. 
They are crying out to him, saying, Lord, when will you return and raise us up to life? And when will we see your vengeance upon those who slayed us? They cry out to the Lord. Now, are, the, are they safe where they are? Are, they what? are the souls safe where they are? Yeah, they are. Is that their final state? Is that what they want? No, that's not. So the word that we would use is telos. Telos, which is a Greek word that means end, but not the end like the end of the book. Telos is the final <laughs> fulfillment. And actually, when Jesus says, it is finished, the Greek word is tetelestai, which is the, uh, it's another form of the word telo, I finish, I complete. So the telos is the final fulfillment. That is not the telos of the Christian, to sit underneath the throne of God and go, God, when will you raise me up? You promised to raise me up. When are you going to do it? Look at them that laughed at me and scorned me and mocked me and said my faith was a lie. When are you going to prove them wrong? Look at those who took my life, who hated me. Look at them. When are you going to take your vengeance on them? And Abel is one of them. Lord, my brother has slain me. You said that vengeance is yours. What are you going to do about it, Lord? And the Lord comes and he says, My, or the blood of your brother cries to me. This is one reason, folks, why I made such a big deal about this. If you die before you die, you don't die when you die. The inscription at Mount Athos in, Greek, in Greece. Because it's, it's real for the Christian. Yeah, if you die, you don't die. As long as you die before you die. You know, it's, it's funny and it's sort of like a tongue twister, but it's, it's the real deal. Die before you die, and you don't die when you die. So that death isn't really death, per se. It's the death of the body, but you continue to live. But where is it that you live? You see, that's not the best question. The better question is, how do you live? What is your state? Here's, a, here's another really good example. And this one is personal, as you'll see. Suppose you have a certain number of children. And then suppose that you also have a child or multiple children that have died. Well, you go to the store with the number of children that you have living with you, and somebody asks you, wow, how many children do you have? What number do you give them? Do you give them the total number of children that you have born, or do you give them the number of children that are with you now? Depends on the context of the question. Don't think too much about it. Don't think too much about the context. Just think about, you know, or you meet someone for the first time and they say, well, I've got two kids. How many kids do you have? And then you say, what number? The, the number of the children that are currently with you or the number of the children that you have born in total? The number you have borne in total. And that's an easy thing to say because you can say, well, <clears throat> in my case, uh, for just as an example, how many children do you have? Well, I have two of them, one with us and one with the Lord. Easy. Or I have four children, three with me, one with the Lord. Or I have six children, three with the Lord, three with me. You know, and why would you answer it 
in terms of total number of children born, instead of just saying, how many children do you have, present tense, well, I have however many are with me. Why, why answer it the other way? Why give the total number? Because they're still your children. Dead or alive, they are always your children. They never stop being your children, and you still have them as your children, because while they are gone from you, they are not gone. They are still your children. And they are, even if they are with the Lord, that's why you can say something like, I have, I have this number of children with me, and I have this number with the Lord. Because you have a total number of children that the Lord has given you, but not all of them live with you. Because some of them live, present tense, with the Lord. And, by the way, to say that they live with the Lord is also not a geographical place. Because you say, well, where is the Lord? Say, well, <laughs> that's a big question. But to say with the Lord is really to talk about this idea of the intermediate state. That but sometime between the now and between death and between Christ's return and the resurrection, we are living in this state where we are awaiting, even after death, the resurrection. Because the resurrection is the telos. Your ultimate goal is the resurrection. Your ultimate goal is paradise. And do you know actually what the word paradise means? Because let me give you a little fun fact. The word paradise is not an English word. It is a Greek word. And we use it like it is an English word, and we think that we know what it means. But I guarantee you, you don't. Paradise means garden. It means garden, with specific reference to the Garden of Eden. So what is our ultimate goal? To enter into paradise, which means what? To enter into the perfect place, to enter into the Garden of Eden, to live in the place where man was first put and where man desired to live and where God wanted man to live. Well, how can you live in Eden if you don't have a body? You can't. So what do you need? You need a resurrection. Don't forget this. What happens to Jesus happens to you. What happens to Jesus? He dies and? And raised. Which means what's going to happen to you? Raised. The ultimate goal is the telos of the Christian is the resurrection and the entry into paradise in the resurrected flesh. Bill, and then Rhonda. <laughs> Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Yes. So Jesus is in paradise with all of the faithful that died. All the faithful are with Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you in on something. You and your brother both, each of you has brought up one of two problematic things. <laughs> so, yeah, I was going to say, I guess I can count on the Heitman boys. <laughs> so the thing that your brother brought up was the parable of Dives and Lazarus. Mm -hmm. That's problematic because the question then is, and I said this a couple weeks ago when he brought it up, is the parable of Dives and Lazarus more than a parable? 
is that intended to be an accurate description of the way everything is supposed to be? Because if the answer is no, then we can't actually use that in the way that we want to as a description of how things are going to be. It describes some realities, but that itself is not a picture that is painted for us to look at and then use as a model for how things will be. Now, then the, the other problem is Dismas, the thief on the cross. Well, yes, Jesus says, assuredly I say to you this day, you will be with me in paradise. And then where does Jesus go? Hell. And how many days does he spend there? Three. Well, sure, okay. Yeah. On the third day. So up until the third day. So how do you rectify that? He says, hey, you're going to be with me in paradise. And then, hey, welcome to hell. What's the deal? See, that doesn't really work either. There's a really easy solution to that, and it's all in the editors. It's all in the placement of the comma. Does Jesus say, assuredly I say to you, comma, this day you will be with me in paradise, <laughs> hell. Just wait another three days, even though I told you this day, you know, there's a slight delay. You've got a layover in hell here, Dismas, just hold on. Or is it, assuredly I say to you this day, comma, you will be with me in paradise. Because if it's the latter, all of a sudden everything makes sense. Because what happens when Jesus is raised from the dead? Only the Gospel of Matthew records this, by the way. And it doesn't, he doesn't record it with the rest of the resurrection things. He records it at the time of the crucifixion. What happens? The dead are raised. The dead are raised. At Jesus, it's, so it's not just Jesus that is raised from the dead at his resurrection. You know, everybody else's resurrection is sort of overshadowed by the fact that Jesus is the one who rises. And because Jesus rises, the other dead rise too. That's why, by the way, when you look at icons like the resurrection, Jesus is coming out of the tomb leading a whole bunch of people that are all holding hands. And typically they're coming either out of a grave or they're coming out of the mouth of a monster, which is death. He's leading his people out. So, and, and we'll talk more about this, but this is what you asked about a couple weeks ago, Becky, in terms of what we would call the harrowing of hell. What happens to the people that die before Christ's crucifixion? Well, read the Psalms. They go to Sheol. They go down to the pit. You know, and then Christ goes down and brings them back and rescues them and leads them to paradise. But, uh, yeah, so that's, that's the way to address that. Does that sort of answer your question? Okay, Rhonda. Well, back to, um, like, if you had your siblings or parents. Yes. Okay, there's a lot of that I know they would ask mom, how many children, or, or they would even ask me, if you got brothers or sister. I, I would say I have a sister and brother, and I have a brother and some head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't stop being your children or your brothers or, or even your parents. I mean, did you, did you have parents or do you have parents? You have parents. 
Are your parents still alive? Well, maybe not, but you still have them. Why? This is, you've never thought about this before, I can almost guarantee you. But why is it that we always use the present tense when we talk about that? It's never you had parents, well I had parents, but then they died and now I don't have parents anymore. No, you, I have parents, but they have died. Why do you use the present tense? I had children, but then they died and now I don't have children anymore. What? That doesn't make any sense. You have children and you always have children. Whether they're with you or not is, is a different issue. The question of how many kids do you have, or do you have parents, or how many siblings do you have, or whatever, well, you know, that's the question. And it's always present tense. Because you don't stop having them. Because they are yet alive. Because man is more than just the body. Now, if we talk about, like, your dog, how many dogs have you had in your life, you notice that we naturally make a shift like that. We talk about how many dogs or how many cats have you had well, this many. How, many. how many siblings do you have? I have this many. You see this? Because man is a different animal. Body and soul. So let's, I've got a couple quotes here. <clears throat> uh, these first two are from John Stevenson, who is a Lutheran theologian. He wrote the book for the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series called um, Eschatology, which is Study of the End Times. <laughs> This is what he says, St. Francis's talk of, quote, most kind and gentle death, which leads to heaven, the child of God, uh, and Luther's interpretation of the seventh petition of the Our Father, deliver us from evil, remember that, as a request that the Heavenly Father would, when our last hour comes, grant us a blessed end, and graciously take us away from this world of sorrow to himself in heaven, excuse me, presupposes the truth of the immortality of the soul and the reality of the intermediate state of the blessed. That there is a time between death and the resurrection. There simply has to be. So powerful is the New Testament witness to the reality of the intermediate state that one can but register mute amazement at the decision of the, some scholars to reduce the status medius or the intermediate state to nothing more than the departed's being preserved in the eternal memory of God. I mean, now that's almost pagan, that when you die, you just cease to exist and the only part of you that still exists is that God has a memory that one time you did exist. That's sort of depressing. <laughs> Can, do you still live if you're really only living in the Lord's memory? No, I know the Catholic Church has gone back and forth about purgatory, but it would seem that in your image from Revelation of the souls crying out, that to me looks like a purgatory situation. Purgatory? As I have learned, they have been for purgatory and against all Yes. I have a whole uh, we'll, I have a whole bunch to talk about with purgatory. And I'll give you I'll give you the short, short answer. <laughs> the short, short answer is where do they get it? Well, there's a passage in one of the epistles to the Corinthians where St. Paul talks about the purifying by fire. 
And guess what? Lutherans actually believe in purgatory too. Just how we talk about it is different. Um, but we both use that same passage. And then there are some apocryphal texts. Um, and by apocryphal, I mean quite literally they are from the apocrypha that could possibly be interpreted in a way that lends itself to a, an understanding of purgatory. And I say it that way because the Apocrypha is not just for Roman Catholics, it's for you Lutherans as well. Um, in fact, you all should read the Apocrypha. Yeah, CPH right, CPH actually has the Lutheran Apocrypha, which at some point we'll get for the library downstairs for you to read. And frankly, if you want my humble opinion, for whatever it's worth, I think that if you haven't read at least certain books of the Apocrypha, you're, you're kind of an incomplete Christian because there are so many elements of the Apocrypha that are brought into uh, the Jewish faith, the context of the faith of Jesus' time, and very strongly in the early Christian church and actually, believe it or not, the Lutheran church. So the Lutheran church, in, in, the, in the Book of Concord, they cite the books from the Apocrypha as authoritative sources to back up some of their arguments, um, along with scripture. And the, if you go by the daily lectionaries that were established around the time of the Lutheran Reformation and then continued on throughout the years, there are apocryphal readings that are included in the Christian's daily lectionary. So even the Lutheran reformers said, this, you know, this is Christian canon. We don't just throw out Christian canon. Now it's not scripture, and we all agree that it's not scripture, but as far as uh, Christian canon goes, this is the, the second, you know, scripture is obviously in place number one, but as, as it compares with the rest of the Christian canon, the Apocrypha sits in the number two place. So everybody should read it, Bill. The, the pulpit Bible at St. John's, the old one, the German pulpit Bible, mm -hmm. had the Apocrypha in it. Yes. And I asked Pastor uh, Lowmaster one time, I said, hey, I was looking through the, 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 uh, the German Bible and I see it sit the Apocrypha in there. And he said, that was common in the, in the early Lutheran churches or for a long, long period of time yeah. that the pulpit Bible had the Apocrypha in it, but that was not unusual. Right, there was, an, and, and that example is perfect because it goes to prove the point that the idea that we don't have anything to do with the Apocrypha or shouldn't read it or not uphold it as canonical church books is not an old view, that's a recent view. And I don't know how recent it is, uh, but, however recent the idea that faithful Lutherans define themselves by the degree to which they hate Roman Catholics. All of that happened at the same time where all of a sudden we hated, we hated Catholics in a different way than like the Reformation. And, we, and then it was, you know, you can't date a Catholic, don't you dare go to a dance with a Catholic. Oh, you better not even marry a Catholic, I'll disown you if you'd go to visit. Or you can't go to that, don't go to that yard sale because that's a Catholic household there. We don't want anything to do with the Catholics. And you know, then you've got like, Montagues and Capulets, but with Lutherans and Catholics. And it's around that time that the Apocrypha just disappeared from the Lutheran Church. Why? Because that's Catholic. Guess what else disappeared from the Lutheran Church? Making the sign of the cross. Guess what else? Having the baptismal font in the back where you dip your fingers in. Guess what else? Things like, oh, a paschal candle. Guess what else? Things like vestments. And it's really funny that all that stuff disappeared. One, 
Because all of that stuff, <laughs> none of it is uniquely Roman Catholic, but it is uniquely Christian. Two, none of that stuff is stuff that Lutherans got rid of. You read the Book of Concord, and even in the Augsburg Confession, as it pertains to what we would call divine service, they called Mass. So you go to a lot of Lutheran churches, and the Lutheran churches still call it Mass. And the, and the, the Augsburg Confession says, we do not abolish the Mass. In fact, we hold it up and continue the Mass with all of its trappings and ceremonies. All of the things that, that we look at and say, well, that's too Catholic. The Lutheran reformers said, no, 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 we keep that. We want to be Catholic. Here's the other thing, you know, the sign of the cross went out of practice. Why? Because it's too Catholic. Guess what Luther's, <laughs> Luther says? Begin your day by making the sign of the cross and praying this prayer, and end your day by making the sign of the cross and, and saying this prayer. Right? Sorry, friends, but we can't have it both ways. We can't uphold the Book of Concord and the small catechism as a part of that and also hate all of the things that they talk about because they're too Catholic. It's one or the other. You're going to hate Catholics or you're going to be good Lutherans. Which do you want to be? So the, the idea that all of this is the way Lutherans have always done it is frankly laughable because it's very new. It, it, it's, a, it's a new and, and poor innovation of the Lutheran church in modern years. So anyway, such watering down of the content of divine revelation, which means talking about death in any way other than talking about the fact that there is an intermediate state and that resurrection is the end goal and that there is something that happens between death and between the resurrection even though the resurrection and life in paradise is the ultimate goal. So saying anything about that is watering down what scripture says and denies, oh, excuse me, it represents the cruelest form of pastoral irresponsibility since it denies to believing souls facing the cutting off of all earthly ties in death, the comfort which the Holy Spirit would gladly bestow. So the pastor that would say, well, you're only a memory in God's mind, or yeah, you just die and then there's nothing there, or that says, well, no, you know, uh, there's no intermediate state at all, Th that's denying the plain words of scripture and the pastor is going against his job as the pastor if he says anything other than what scripture actually teaches. And this gets me to what you had brought up, you and Morris together a couple weeks ago, and my response was, well, let's look at the creeds of the church. If this is what you were taught, X, Y, and Z, let's compare it to the creeds of the church, and if they differ from the creeds of the church, what do we, what is the authoritative, what is the, the authoritative teaching? The creeds. And the creeds lay it out like this. So when you get to a certain point where sometimes things become popular and then are taught, but just because they're popular doesn't make them right or worth teaching, which is one reason we're doing this. But the idea that a pastor would water down scripture or not give you all of what you ought to have or would need to have or would want to have, um, Pastor Stevenson, says is irresponsibility, which I tend to agree with. Um, we've got a couple more here that we'll talk about next time. And one of them is from, two of them actually from one of my top 10 most influential theologians, Papa Bene, as I call him, but Pope, dear Pope Benedict XVI, Cardinal Ratzinger, Joseph Ratzinger. Um, so you have that to look forward to about purgatory, Bob. So, so stay tuned.
<laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. You know, what's really, what's really funny about purgatory is if you actually look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is an outstanding book, to be clear, it's, it's very good. Um, they're very, the Catechism is very vague on purgatory. It lends itself well to kind of, it's, it, the, the wording is it playing it safe. And then you can, you can look at that and then you can listen to people like Pope Benedict who will talk about it one way and then you can listen to somebody else who might talk about it a completely different way and then you ask yourself, well, well what do you actually believe about this? And you get back to the catechism and, and you look at how vague it is and you think, well, there's lots and lots and lots and lots of room for interpretation here because I think the bottom line is, well, we don't really know. We know there's something, but we don't really know. And we've spent so long trying to explain exactly what it is, this thing that we don't know and have no way of knowing, that now we're starting to back off of it a little bit and say, well, actually, you know, we don't really know. We know there's going to be something, but we don't know exactly what it is. So that's about the best answer we can give you. There, there's something there, and it's going to be sort of like this a little bit, maybe, but we also can't say with 100% certainty that it's going to be exactly like this. And, you know, that's about the best we can give you. So it is interesting to see that the, the ups and downs of... I, I listened to this whole argument and afterwards it was kind of like, well, what do you believe? Because he quoted some of the things in the epistles. Oh, yeah, there's stuff in the epistles. The funny thing is, this, this happens a lot with theologians, so I'm not going to say just Roman Catholics because all theologians are guilty of it. Theologians get really good at talking <laughs> and they get really good at pretending to answer questions and they get really good at answering the question that they want to answer instead of answering the question that was posed to them. And for that reason, they just should all run for office. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see you at the altar. <laughs>